Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. the book of Revelation, chapter 19. It would be impossible to continue talking about the benefits of Christianity and not at some point talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is our goal, to be joined to our bridegroom. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the appearance of Christ that he's going to appear in the clouds, and then we are going to be taken up, lifted up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But that's not the end of it. When we meet with the Lord, he is then going to take us home with himself, and the first thing we read is that we are going to participate with him in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, throughout the Bible, feasts are considered a time of great joy, a time of fellowship. Feasting is a time of of happiness. And we are promised that when our bridegroom comes to get us, that we are going to be taken to the home that he has prepared for us so that we can share in the joyous feast with him as our marriage to him is consummated for all eternity. So one of the benefits of Christianity 
is that we are going to wind up in a happy place. We're going to wind up cheerful and joyous. It's described as the place where there's no more weeping, where there's no more death, no more sickness, and that God himself is going to wipe away every tear. Gee, that sounds like a pretty big benefit to me. So let's read about the marriage supper of the Lamb to begin the morning, and then we're going to dig into the details. Revelation 19, starting at verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And the second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down And worshiped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts. Of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours, and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's where we are introduced to the concept of the marriage supper of the Lamb. But the marriage supper of the Lamb is actually foreshadowed throughout the Bible. And we miss the connection between us and our bridegroom if we don't understand all of the Old Testament and New Testament allusions to our relationship with him, his courtship of us, and how we are betrothed to our husband-to-be, and how we are ultimately going to be joined with him at this joyous supper where we are going to then live with him for the rest of eternity. 
So my goal this morning, and it may take us two weeks, I don't really know. I have been plagued this week by the realization that God had a different plan than my plan. I thought I knew where we were going this week. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb was laid on my heart so heavily that I had to start constructing notes like mad so that we could talk this morning about all the foreshadows leading up to the marriage supper. And the more that you know about ancient Hebrew weddings, the more you will see that language of Hebrew weddings throughout the Bible when describing our relationship with Christ. And the more I studied it, the deeper in love with my bridegroom I fell. And I hope you will too. It is God who created marriage. And he used that same concept as a blueprint for our plan of salvation. But if you don't know the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, then you're going to miss the beauty and the security of our Savior's promises to us. So that's what we're going to be studying for the next couple of weeks. Let's start at the beginning. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he also created marriage. It was his idea. He came up with it. As soon as he introduced the woman to the man, you go back and you read in the book of Genesis that God was creating, and everything he created was good, and it was good, and it was good, and he's the one that said it was good, and everything he made, it was good. The first time that you read that God says something is not good is when he discovers that the man is alone. And he says, it's not good for a man to be alone. And that's why he created a mate for men. This whole idea of one man, one woman for life was God's plan. And Jesus validated that, verified that, that from the beginning, one man, one woman, that was God's plan. By the way, not to get too political on you this early on Sunday, And since we are inundated by politics these days. But I am convinced that one of the reasons that there is this movement in the world to profane true marriage is because it is the plan of God and the sinful world is attempting to destroy the perfect, holy, righteous plan of God and profane what marriage was meant to be and say that marriage can be any number of people, or that it can be two people of the same gender, same sex. I shouldn't say gender, since that's even a jump ball these days. But are you aware of the fact that God actually created two genders? Are we okay with that? There's male, there's female, that's how he created them, and then he joined them together because that was his ultimate plan. Marriage is ultimately about Christ and his church. Paul keeps using that kind of language. When talking to husbands, he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So that language of marriage permeates Christian New Testament theology. But our concentrated effort for the next perhaps two weeks is going to be to look at old Jewish wedding tradition, and what the Bible has to say about how Jewish weddings were performed. 
Now we, being a bunch of 21st century Gentiles, we're not as familiar with how ancient Jewish weddings were held. So I went and looked at some sources. Now I'm going to tell you what my sources are so that you don't think that this is just Jim making stuff up. I went to a site called myjewishlearning.com. I also looked at the Messianic Prophecy Bible Project. I also looked at the website of the Jewish Federation. I also went to the messianicbible.com and I relied on an article by Javier Valdiviso. His article is called The Ancient Jewish Wedding, A Missing Link in Christianity, an article that was published back in 2009. Those are the sources for the things that I'm about to tell you. This is not 21st century Christian thinking. This is ancient Hebrew thinking and tradition on which so much of the biblical relationship between the church and Christ is founded. And the more you understand of it, the more you grasp of it, the more you're going to understand that Jesus said and did a lot of things that were grounded in these traditions. We just don't recognize them because we're not ancient Hebrews. Some of us are merely ancient. I won't name names or point fingers. Now, also, we have several Messianic Jewish friends who listen to us on a regular basis. And they call me, and they email me, and they're fans of GCA because GCA is very Israel-friendly. And so converted Jewish folk like to listen to the teaching from here at GCA. So I need to say to them in advance that I'm going to horribly mispronounce a bunch of Hebrew words. We're going to do our best to use some of the Hebrew language as we go through this. You know, one of the songs that we love singing here at GCA is called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. You may know that song. As I was doing this studying, I came across a tradition, a Jewish tradition that Jewish wedding bands are often inscribed with the phrase Ani Eldodi Vidodi Li, which means I am my beloved's and my beloved's mine. Those words are written into that beautiful hymn. But it is also the very essence of what Christianity is. I am my beloved's and my beloved's mine. Those are beautiful lyrics. But you need to know that even those lyrics that we've been singing for years are founded in Hebrew tradition. You'd be hard-pressed to find an occasion that's more joyous than a Jewish wedding. Growing up as a musician, especially in Detroit, every weekend I was playing a wedding or a bar mitzvah somewhere. And I played countless Jewish weddings. And it was one of my favorite things to do. Not only because the food was really good, but also because the amount of joy was just overwhelming. That idea of the joy of marriage, the joy of weddings, 
is even all the way back in Jeremiah 33 when Jeremiah is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem but then also promising the glorious future for Jerusalem. We read in Jeremiah 33 starting at verse 10, Yet in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, they will be inhabited by people and animals. There will be heard once more the sound of joy and gladness the voices of the bride and the bridegroom. So Jeremiah used the symbol of a bride and a bridegroom to describe joy returning to Jerusalem. That's how joyous the Bible looks at the wedding of a man and a woman. So, okay, let's start talking about Orthodox Jewish weddings in Jerusalem for a bit. There are three distinct parts to an ancient Jewish wedding. Now, as I'm describing each of these parts, and as we're looking at the details, you're going to hear all these echoes of your Christian faith. You're going to hear things that are going to make you think, oh, Jesus said that. Oh, that's, that's actually the way the Bible describes my relationship with Christ. And as you hear those echoes in the text and in your head, we want you to hear that. We want you to recognize that the Hebrew culture and the way that they looked at weddings is the same identical way that Christ used the language of his betrothal to his beloved and the guarantees that the groom makes to the bride and the way that the groom prepares for the bride so that we can understand the ideal of marriage in the consummation of the church with Christ. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. And granted, those of you who know me know that I am usually not a beautiful, beautiful guy. I'm usually a sarcastic guy. But this morning, I just want you to see the beauty of your beloved. There are three distinct parts to an ancient Jewish wedding. The first was a period of mutual commitment. The Shidukin is what it's called. The next is the period of engagement. That's called the Erosine. And then the actual marriage, the ceremony of marriage, the consummation of the marriage. And that's known as the Nisuin. We're going to talk about each of those three parts. Proverbs 18.22 tells us, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. That's the first stage of this whole marriage thing. First, you have to find a wife. And that's why the Bible would even say a man who finds a wife actually gets a blessing from God. The Shidukin refers to the preliminary arrangements that are made prior to the legal betrothal. In other words, the two parties get together and basically make a deal. Here's your first important theological reality. The father of the groom usually selected the bride. He selected her the same way that Abraham did for his son Isaac. You can read about that all the way back in Genesis 24. But that should also have echoes of your own theology that it is the father of the groom who chooses the bride. No surprise then that Jesus, while he was on the planet, 
would say things like in John 6:37, where he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. What's he saying? He's saying, the Father has chosen my bride for me. And the one that my Father has chosen for me, I will protect, I will keep, I will take to myself, and I will never abandon. Why would Jesus be so specific that who the Father gives me will come to me? It's because the marriage began with the father of the groom choosing the bride. That's why you're the bride of Christ. Not because you chose your groom, but because you were chosen by the father for the groom. And the groom has made you all of these great promises. So then they both sign, the bride and the groom sign what is essentially a marriage contract. It's called a ketubah. In ancient times, the ketubah protected the rights of the wife by specifying the groom's responsibilities in caring for her. How many of you women would have preferred a ketubah at the very beginning? The ketubah was designed to protect the bride more than to protect the groom, which is interesting. Once the ketubah was signed, the bridegroom would then declare in a loud voice, It is finished. Does that sound familiar? In other words, he would say, it is paid in full. We have come to a legal agreement with each other. Now, traditionally, in preparation for the betrothal ceremony, the bride, who was called the Kala, and the groom, who was known as the Hatan, now I have to tell you, There's this consonant sound in the Hebrew language that when you look it up in Hebrew dictionaries, it's usually like a KH sound. Now, we don't have anything like that in the English language. So every once in a while, you're going to hear me use words like katan and just know that I have terribly mispronounced that. And it would be easier for me to just call it the hatan, and we would all agree that that means the groom. But you use that kind of consonant sound on a regular basis. Each year, if you talk about Hanukkah, you may call it Hanukkah because you're American. <laughs> but the Hebrew is a KH sound, this Hatan this sound. So traditionally, in preparation for their betrothal ceremony, both the bride and the groom are separately immersed in water in a ritual that's called the mikvah, which is actually symbolic of their spiritual cleansing. Mikvah was a ritual immersion in living waters. Now, in the Bible, we see a lot of that language of living waters. What that means is not static water. It's not water that's just sitting in place. It's a stream that is flowing. It can be water that comes from a stream. It can come from another source, like a lake or a river or an ocean. In fact, a man-made mikvah pool had a constant inflow and an exit drain so that the water was never stagnant. In Judaism, this kind of mikvah was used for a Gentile proselyte when they would convert to Judaism. John the Baptist, or John the Immerser, did that. 
And there were several mikvahs at the temple and in the synagogues and on the preparation day before the Sabbath. And as part of the preparation for the Sabbath, they would immerse. They would what we call baptize. So the bride and the groom would be baptized as a symbol of their own spiritual cleansing. When the bride-to-be was immersed in the mikvah, she was considered to be a new creation with her former sins wiped away, and no one could ever remind her again of her past sins. In the first century, when an immigrant or a foreigner wanted to be part of the nation of Israel, they would go through that process of new citizenship in which they renounced their former nation, their former customs, their former idols, their former family, and their past. And then they learned Judaism based on the several schools or the yeshivas that were around during the time of Jesus. And finally, they were seen by two witnesses as they went through the mikvah, and that was a symbol of dying and being born again. If that all sounds familiar, it's because Christian baptism, according to Paul, is exactly that, a symbol of dying and then rising to newness of life. The same way that Christ died, was buried, and resurrected, we then pick up that same foreshadow, that same typology, and we go beneath the water. And then we are brought up out of the water by the one who is doing the baptism, brought up in a resurrection, not by our own power, and then we walk in newness of life. That is all part of what the mikvah actually had contained within it. And the bride and the groom would go through this ceremonial washing so that they were seen symbolically as being born again. That's ancient language. In Matthew 3, 13 to 17, we read that our bridegroom, Yeshua, was in fact baptized. It's been one of the things that people have argued about for years. Why was Jesus baptized? We know that it wasn't for the washing away of sins because he was sinless. So he had no sins to wash away. John the Baptist said to him, why have you come to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized by you. What was he doing? Why was he doing it? Well, one contention is that he was being mikvah. He was being baptized as the bridegroom, which is why he would then instruct we, his bride, to also be baptized why he would give the command of baptism. So it's much more than just aligning ourselves with the faith of Christ. It's much more than just showing that we are part of the Christian community. It is actually showing that we are the bride of Christ who are also going through ritual cleansing the same way that our bridegroom did because we are preparing for the betrothal period, which is why baptism happens at the point of conversion and not later in our Christian journey. First you go through the baptism and then you go through the betrothal, which we'll get to in just a moment. In Mark 16, 16, Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So Jesus himself commanded us collectively as his bride to take on baptism to demonstrate that we are the same way he was baptized. We are then baptized, showing unity between the groom and the bride-to-be. Isn't that beautiful? 
After the immersion, the couple entered into the chuppah, which is a marriage canopy that was symbolic of the new household that they were planning to create together to establish a binding contract. And here the groom would give the bride money. Can I get a witness? Any of you women up for that? I just, just checking, just. Here the groom would give the bride money or some valuable object such as a ring. We today still do that. We still give her a ring. We call it an engagement ring. And then afterwards, there was a cup of wine that was customarily shared that would seal their covenant vows to one another that was referred to as a simcha. Simcha is a good word. Learn the word simcha. All it means in Hebrew is joy. It is a cup of joy that they would share with each other. When the bride drinks from the cup after the bridegroom, it's a sign that she is accepting the covenant that he has signed during the Ketabah signing. So that is all preparation for the betrothal to come. But then there's a period of the groom's promise. The first time that the husband and the wife would see each other, the groom paid what was called a mohar, which was a bride price. Just like the the engagement rings that we give now, it's a promise of what is to come. It's a promise that he is going to marry her. It's a promise that he is going to go and prepare a place for her. It's a promise that even though he's going away, he's going to come back. That should sound very familiar to you. And then once that is signed, he would pronounce in a loud voice, The price has been paid in full in front of the village. Which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.20 would say things like, You've been bought with a price. You have been. You've been bought with the price that your bridegroom paid as a down payment for your betrothal and ultimate marriage and your eternity living together in the place that he's prepared for you. You were bought with a price and therefore... Glorify God in your body and in your spirit because those are God's. They belong to God and he has betrothed you to his son. So in this very public ceremony under the chuppah, the couple entered into the betrothal period, which typically lasted for about a year, sometimes more. It could last up to two years. And although they were considered married, They didn't live together and they didn't engage in any sexual relations with each other. The marriage was not consummated yet, but they were betrothed to one another. And if the husband wanted to get out of that betrothal, he had to actually acquire a genuine divorce. Because once he had made that promise, signed that contract, had given her the down payment, They were legally married, but they had not yet consummated the marriage. They lived in that condition of betrothed. Which is why when we read the story of Joseph and Mary, and we read that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, when he found her with child, because he was a good man, a righteous man, it says that he thought to put her away privately. That phrase, that put her away, is divorce. To put her away privately means that he 
thought that she had not been sexually pure because after all, she's with child and therefore he wanted to acquire a legal divorce even though they were only betrothed to each other because she had known no man. They had not yet consummated the marriage. So we see even in the relationship between Joseph and Mary, we see this concept of betrothal and how rock solid that betrothal is. So meanwhile, after that public ceremony under the hoopah, once the price had been paid by the bridegroom, a ketubah or a contract document, a covenant promise had been signed between them to record what they had agreed to, what the terms of their betrothal were going to be. And then the groom would agree to provide, follow this, see if this isn't foreshadowing to you, he would then agree to provide for all the needs of the bride while he was away. Christ did that. Christ promised to take care of our needs, to provide for us. Everything we're going to need in this lifetime to get us from here to the home that he has prepared for us, he has promised to take care of us even though he has gone away. Even though he's gone away with the promise, he'll be back. And the reason he promised he'll be back is because he's coming for his bride. And why do we know he's coming back? Because he has agreed to the covenant terms. And the covenant terms guarantee that our husband is going to come get us. I mean, come on, isn't that great? Yes. I just, I love this stuff. So he would go away for a, a year, a couple of years, during which time the bride would wait. She would wear a veil and she would wear a headband. And oftentimes the headband had some of the coins in it that her husband had given her as a symbol to anybody else who wanted to know that she belonged to him and that she was no longer available. She was betrothed to her husband. So that takes us to the period of the Erusine, which is the betrothal. So she's there waiting for him, waiting for the wedding, waiting for the return of her husband. And she's busy making blankets. She's busy trying to be a Proverbs 31 kind of woman. She also shows gratitude to her family for raising her, for taking care of her. And she goes about to mend any hurt relationships that she has in her life. But no matter what, she has to be ready at all times because men, being men, don't like to come get their bride at 2 o'clock in the afternoon when it's convenient. Men, being men, like to be tricky. So we show up at like midnight, like 2 in the morning, and she has to be ready. Jesus himself said in Luke 12, 40, Are you therefore ready also for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. What was he saying? He was saying, I'm going to do what bridegrooms have done forever. I'm not going to come back when you're expecting me. I'm coming back when you're not expecting me. So be ready. Be prepared at all times. Live your life in such a way that if Christ were to return at this moment, if he were to walk through that door right now, you'd be able to say, hey, I was just thinking about you. Hey, I was just waiting for you. The Apostle Paul said this regarding the church. 2 Corinthians 11.2, he said, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, 
for I have espoused you. That is the word betrothed. I have betrothed you to one husband so that I may present you to that husband as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's wedding language. Paul says, I have already betrothed you to your husband. Therefore, you're in the waiting period. You're waiting for the return of your husband who can come back at any moment, so be ready. Now, during that same time, during this betrothal period, the groom is supposed to go and prepare a place for his bride. Typically, what he would do is go back to his father's house and build an extension on his father's house where he and his wife were going to live. So he wasn't just idle for that year or two that he was gone. He was out building a place for them to be, which is why in John 14, verses 2 to 6, we read Jesus himself saying, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. In other words, the house belongs to my father, but there's all these places for my bride to live. And then he says, and I love this phrase, if it were not so, I would have told you. That's the honesty of Jesus. Jesus demonstrated himself to be honest, forthright, truthful, could not lie, would not lie, and then tells us, I'm going to come and get you, and I'm going to take you to my father's house, and don't worry, there are many dwelling places in my father's house. And if that weren't so, I'd have been the first to tell you. But the very fact that I'm telling you means that this actually exists. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Those are not just random words. He is creating that whole betrothal agreement where she is to wait But she belongs to him. She's not available for anybody else. And he has gone to his father's house to build a place for her, guaranteeing that he's going to return to get her so that they can spend the rest of their lives together in his father's house. Jesus used that exact language So that all his hearers, all those first century Jewish listeners who would hear him say that would immediately understand that that was marriage language. That was betrothal language. And I just hope that we as 21st century Gentiles don't lose the beauty of that language. Look, he's been gone for 2,000 years. I am expecting him to come back. You too? Yeah, we're all expecting him to come back. Not just because he said he'd come back. Not just because when he rose up off the planet and was enveloped by clouds and his apostles were standing there looking up into the sky when an angel, a man in white, said to them, Ye men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus will return in like manner as you saw him leave. So we have the promise of Jesus that he'll be back. We have the promise of an angel that he'll be back. But we also have the guarantee of the marriage contract that he's going to be back. He went away to prepare a place for us in his father's house. And if he's gone through the trouble 
of 2,000 years of preparation, what are the chances he's not going to come get us? He's been preparing for us. So then there was a conversation. Once the groom had to leave, as part of that agreement between them, as part of that ketubah, there was a conversation where he would say, I have to go. I'm going to prepare a bridal chamber, a place for you at my father's house. And that Jewish tradition is kept to this very day. Those are the words that they still use. And then the groom would go back to his father's house and build an addition to their existing dwelling. If you were to go to Israel today, modern Israel, you can see all these houses that have all these additions that have been made onto them because the sons of the household have gotten married. So the bridegroom would then respond to the groom when he would say, I have to go. I'm going to prepare a bridal chamber, a place for you at my father's house. She would then say, do not go as a demonstration of her love for him and her longing not to miss him. She would say, do not go. And the groom would respond, it is better for you that I go and that I come back. Sound familiar? It's what Jesus told his apostles. It's better for you if I go. And then I come back. She would then ask, when? When are you coming back? And for 2,000 years, the bride has been asking, when? When are you coming back? And the groom would respond, I do not know. My servant does not know. Only my father knows that day. Because it was the father who would deem the dwelling to be properly built and would then send his son to go get his wife. Sound familiar? Yes. Tom just went, (laughs) that's right. That's the right response. Although the bride knew to expect her groom in about a year. She never knew the exact day. She never knew the exact hour. He could come earlier. He could come later. But it was the father of the groom who gave the final approval to him to go and collect his bride. Mark 13, starting at verse 32, we read, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son But the Father only, take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is for the Son of Man is like a man taking a long, far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work. And he commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore. For you know not when the master of the house comes, at evening, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping, and what I say unto you, I say unto you all, watch. That's what the bride was supposed to be doing. Supposed to be waiting, supposed to be watching, supposed to be anticipating, supposed to be expecting the return of her groom. Because it could be at any time. But it was up to the father to determine the time. So, 
While the bridegroom is busy preparing the chuppah, he would send a chaperone or a servant to keep an eye on her to ensure that she was cared for and that she was still being watchful for the return of her groom. In other words, once he left, he sent his servant to go watch over her. Sound familiar? The Holy Spirit of God was sent to us. Jesus, one of the reasons that he said, it's better for you if I go away, is he said, then the Spirit's going to come. The Spirit acts as a chaperone, chaperoning us through this lifetime, encouraging us to think about and to study about our bridegroom, to listen for his call, to expect his coming, and to keep ourselves true and pure to our husband alone because we're not available to anyone else who might be courting us. We belong to him and him alone. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. This alertness was then manifested every night because usually the bridegroom, as I said, would show up at night. She had to have oil in her lamp that was burning all the time. The bride also had to have her virgins, her bridesmaids around her who were helping and serving her and they were also to help her watch. And they were all collectively anticipating the joy that was to come at the wedding. In fact, in John 3, starting at verse 29, I'll read 29 and 30 to you. This is John the Baptist speaking. And he says, he that hath a bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is my joy, therefore, that is fulfilled, because he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist used wedding language in order to describe his relationship with Christ. He said, Christ is the groom. He's the one that has the bride. They don't belong to me. I'm the friend of the groom. And when I hear the voice of the groom, I get joy over it because I know that he is coming for the bride because he has promised that he would be back. So John the Baptist uses that kind of wedding language. Before the bridegroom left, he spent precious time with his bride-to-be, and there was joy, but there was also anxiety about the unknown things that were about to happen. So considering this, you can better understand when Jesus said, reading from Luke 5, 33 and 34, they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees fast often and they make long prayers? But your disciples are busy eating and drinking, which is a sign of joy, a sign of celebration. And then Jesus said to them, can you make the children of the bride chamber fast when the bridegroom is with them? Jesus uses the language of the betrothal period in order to say, while I'm on the planet, there is great joy between me and my bride. There's going to be a time for fasting and prayer and waiting after I leave. But as long as I'm here, why would you expect my bride to be unhappy? Of course, she'd be full of joy. She's with her groom. So that would be John the Baptist who used 
bridal language to describe his relationship with Jesus. That's Jesus who used bridal language in order to describe why it is that his apostles were in joy. It's Paul who uses bridal language in order to demonstrate that he has betrothed us as a chaste virgin to one husband. The Bible, Old and New Testament, is just riddled with this kind of wedding, betrothal, marriage language so that we can have a greater understanding of our relationship and our security in Christ. So he leaves. The groom up and leaves. Once he left, the bride focused on her personal preparations for marriage, as I mentioned earlier. The betrothal, the actual betrothal period then, had two different aspects. One was a physical aspect. She's getting ready for the marriage. She's preparing things for the marriage. She's reading Bride magazine. She's... <laughs> sorry. She's making her plan. She's picking out dresses. She's getting, she's getting ready for the marriage. But there was another aspect of the betrothal. And it was a time of personal sanctification. In fact, it's called the Kiddushin which actually comes from the word kadosh, which means holy. It was a time for her to ritually purify herself, starting with her baptism, and then her time of keeping herself pure so that when her bridegroom came, he would find her not only anticipating his return, but also keeping herself sanctified only for him. And by the way, that word holy, that word sanctified, all of those words mean to be separated, to be separate from the sin of this world, to separate yourself to Christ, to God, and that's what she would do while she was waiting for her husband to return. So we then, now that I've laid all that out, let me apply some of it right here and now. We, the church, right here and now, that's the period we're in. We're living in this period where we're waiting for our bridegroom to return, even though we already have a covenant agreement, even though he has already established the new covenant through his blood, even though he and his father have agreed on who the bride is, even though all of that has been established, we right now are in the betrothal period where we belong to our husband and therefore we're not to be interested in any of the stuff of this world that would entice us or draw us away from our husband. We're not to go engage ourselves with the activities of, oh, I'll just say it, prostitution, not engaging in any sort of relationship with other men outside of marriage. We're supposed to be ritually purifying ourselves to the one that we are betrothed to. And the more you understand about this period of Jewish betrothal, the more you can understand how Jesus views our time here on earth while we're waiting for him. Because he has already made us promises. He has already betrothed himself to us. He has already given us the down payment and he has sent a servant to protect us and watch over us and help purify us and help us think about our returning Lord. He's already done all that and is actively at this moment preparing a place for you 
so that he can come and get you so that you will always be where he is. So he has already established the marriage contract. He has already established this betrothal period. You, as a chaste virginal bride, are supposed to keep yourself only unto him. Which is why throughout the Old Testament, chasing after other gods was not only an undermining of the marriage contract, but that's why you see the words of prostitution in the Old Testament. Because as Israel would chase other gods, God himself said, I was a husband to you. And yet, you went off chasing your foreign lovers. So anything other than, let me make this as plain as I can, anything other than biblical Christianity is not staying true to your betrothed husband. If you're off chasing foreign gods, if you're off chasing the stuff that this world has to offer you, if you're off chasing anything that would take you away from the purity, the righteousness, the holiness that you were supposed to be engaging in for sake of your relationship with your bridegroom, any of that is a form of destruction of the marriage contract and you engaging in prostitution. So we're here waiting We're waiting so that one day the father is going to say to the son, okay, it's time. Go and get your bride. And then at some least expected moment of the night, the trumpet's going to sound and the bridegroom, we're going to see him in the distance. What did we see last night? What did we see last night? What did we see last night? I'll tell you what I saw. I saw the back of my eyelids. That's what I saw last night. What did we see last week? That there's going to be the sun and the moon and the stars go dark. And against that backdrop, the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens. So glorious and so seeable that he says it's going to be like the lightning from the east to the west. Everyone's going to see it. Especially against that black backdrop of the heavens going dark. We're going to see our bridegroom return and we're supposed to be watching for it. At the least expected moment, there's going to be a trumpet sound. That's interesting because the friends of the bridegroom, in order to wake everybody up and let them know, especially the bride and her maidens, to let them know that it was the time for the return, he would blow a trumpet. What have we been reading about the rapture? That Christ would come with the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet and a shout. Well, the other things that the friends of the bridegroom would do is they would blow the ram's horn, the trumpet, and they would shout in the streets, Behold, the bridegroom comes. And at that least expected moment, our bridegroom's going to return. And we should be ready to hold out our lamp. Say, Here I am. I'm waiting. I'm looking for you. While we're waiting, we, the believers in Christ, should be living consecrated lives in preparation for this wedding feast of the Lamb that's coming up when the groom comes with the blast of the shofar and the shout to come and get his bride. Now the groomsmen run ahead of the groom. They sound the shofar. They shout that he's coming. And then while the father's head, and this is just kind of a funny tradition, the father of the bride would turn his head 
so that he wasn't looking when his daughter was stolen away. Interesting language. He comes and snatches her. He comes and takes his bride. Matthew 25. I'm going to read all 13 verses. We're just about done for this morning. Matthew 25, starting at verse 1. Then the kingdom of God will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in their flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the shops, to the dealers, and buy yourself some. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later, other virgins also came saying, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then Jesus tells us what the moral of the story is. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. He told that whole story to say, To his people, his church, watch, be ready. Don't be messing with the the tomfoolery or the gymfoolery of this world. (laughs) Instead, concentrate on the things of Christ. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, but do it as unto the Lord. It is the Lord who gives you the strength, who gives you the knowledge, who gives you the job, who gives you the ability to get wealth in order to take care of your family, in order to do the things that you're supposed to do in this lifetime. Therefore, if it's him who is providing for you everything necessary in this lifetime, then he needs to get all the glory. He gets all the honor. You should be thanking him continually, and you should be keeping yourself ready for his son to come back and get you. Because that's the promise of the marriage. Next week, we're going to get to the final step of the Jewish wedding, the Nisuin, because there's a lot that happens there. So if you enjoyed this this morning, and I hope you did, and I don't care because I did, (laughs) but if you enjoyed this this morning, I hope that's enough to encourage you to come back next week because... As we look into the wedding, and then we see the feast, and then we see the garments at the wedding, we're also going to be able to prove definitively the same way that we looked at the evidence that showed us pre-tribulational catching away of the church. Next week, we're going to see pre-millennial gathering of the church. And it's not even hard to prove, especially once we understand all of this marriage language. Did you enjoy that?
Yes. Come on, admit it. That's beautiful stuff. Yes. Come on. I, that's just it's wonderful stuff. And it's riddled throughout the Bible. All this marriage language and the more you know about the security of ancient Jewish weddings and the responsibility of the husband and the responsibility of the wife, the more you understand about that, the more you'll really understand your Christian commitment to your groom, Jesus Christ, the righteous who's coming to get you because you are betrothed to him. And that's just good. Grab a hymnal. Steve, if you would. listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. 
we invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. For weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.